When it comes to building a thriving business, the numbers and the economics are just a piece of the puzzle. The true key to success is in understanding human psychology. That was the driving insight that led Paul Lindley to turn Ella's Kitchen into a $100 million healthy kids food brand. My philosophy around business and more about life is you need people to help you along the way, whatever you're trying to do. Paul knew real leadership means inspiring a team, giving them a compelling vision, and empowering them to relentlessly pursue that vision, even when it means taking huge risks. I'm a risk taker. I worked out that if I spent two years and X amount of pounds, I was confident in myself if I hadn't got there, I would go back to what I did before. In this episode, Paul reveals how he mastered psychology and company culture, got Ella's Kitchen noticed on a national scale on a shoestring budget, and hired for mindset over skill set to build a purpose-driven brand that changed the industry. You say you've got a lot of successful people on here. Now, if that success is defined by they built a business that became a unicorn, they sold it, and they went on to do something else, that's great. If success for them was I did something that changed the world, I did something that held my marriage together, I did something that my kids could make me feel proud of me because I did it, that's success. Paul. I very excited to have you here. Thank you very much. Uh, particularly enjoying the fact that obviously you're quite well renowned for uh, serving and pleasing toddlers everywhere. And mine is probably going to walk in at some point during our interview and fall over all the camera stuff and everything. It'll be a nice little entertainment piece for us. Um, so until that happens, <laughs> can you please give context? Who are you? Okay, great. Um, my name is Paul Lindley. I'm best known as the founder of Ella's Kitchen, the biggest baby food company in the UK. Um, but that was 10 years ago that I sold the business and I've tried to use entrepreneurship outside of mainstream business since then to help kids, which was why I started Ellis Kitchen, I guess, in the first place, be, but be smart, be smarter, stronger, kinder, but live their lives so that they have their well-being, their welfare and their rights protected. That's, and, and some of that is with, within business, I do, um, and much of it is without business, but trying to use entrepreneurship in those spaces. Did you always care about children, kids, the youth, or is it a typical male path that became a father and realized I had emotions? <laughs> it's unusual, I think, because I think it, I copped on in my 30s that what, what, like in my 50s now, what you see of me, gray hair, lines, and stuff, isn't me. The inside of me is this little boy still. And I don't think I've ever grown up. And that that person has this free thinking and imagination that's helped me succeed to be an entrepreneur and helped me really connect, I suppose, with my childhood and therefore children and childhoods. Obviously, when I had my own children, it came in spades back of, oh, she's only four, but she's just like me, uh, laughing at the same thing. And I guess part of the story of how Ella's Kitchen came about was literally in feeding my daughter, Ella, and in messing around, finding, knowing the things that I was good at to try and get her to feed, which was silliness, games, laughter, and just mess. And she popped her mouth open and I popped the spoon in. And I thought that is the key to what my brand suddenly became. And I, I put my head down and thought about it. Um, so I'm a toddler at heart, basically. So talk to me a little bit about your background. It's unusual. Don't hear this background okay. every, through every guest. Okay. You know, I, I want to hear a little bit about um, your influences in okay. life, the right. people that you respect and look up to in your family tree, you know, the people that shape who you are. 
I am really grounded. This will come through, I hope, in the next few minutes, um, but in people and how our connections to people evolve and keep us well, basically. I think we're a social animal and I think we, we thrive when we, we interact with people. And I know, know our people and our family history. So I've had the privilege to look back into mine and about 20 years ago, found something that has been seminal to the light bulb to say, this is why I do what I do. And this is why this is, gives me some direction as to where I'm going to go next. And that was from my cousin, funnily enough, but she found, she'd done the whole family tree thing. And she found something that's in my uh, day book. I keep it every day with me. It mm. is my great grandparents' uh, marriage certificate oh from 1862. And you know, for our family, okay, it's interesting. They were farm laborers. He, he was um, John and she was Sarah, blah, blah, blah. And they signed it in May 1862 with X's. So neither of them could read or write. And I thought, my goodness, in 1862, did really people in England not learn to read or write? They, they were farm laborers. But what, what didn't they get? What opportunities didn't they get because they couldn't read a newspaper or find a job ad or find, read the directions to get to the nearest town? They were mm -hmm. rural people. How, how, they may have been fully fulfilled in their lives, but I'm thinking maybe they weren't fulfilled in their lives and how vital literacy is to how we actually take it for granted how vital it is for opportunity and i was sort of thinking how it set my life is that's fascinating to us as a family and i can't do anything to somebody four generations back from me but what i can do is something to four people four people to the side of me now so four people i don't know people away from the people i know what can i do in my life in my entrepreneurship in my ideas to help their lives be better because some of those people may be illiterate, and I'm sure they are, but there are other problems of, of today. How can we use business at first to create products and services that improve people's lives? Um, and that's why it's going to be a successful business. And outside of business, how can we change society to be better? And it, it's, it's really driven me, um, this one piece of paper. And then from my other side, the other connection is the uh, wedding ring that I'm wearing right now. It's been on my, has never come off my uh, finger for 30 years. And it was off a finger for about six months because my grandmother died just before I got married. And it was on her finger for 61 years before that. And she was 19 from a poor family in Ireland. My grandfather was 31 from a rich family in Ireland. And they told, that his family told him, if you get married, you're not inheriting the farm and kind of his, his land. And they eloped. They got up at 5 a.m., they went to the church, the priest gave them some coins and a ring, this ring, and they went to Dublin and they went to Hollyhead and they went to Sheffield. And that ring has, has sort of taught me to be humble in, and, and to, re, to be curious, to reach out, to kind of try the impossible. Because they left their country, came here with nothing and built a life. And their grandchild has created a super business that that has made my children have a different trajectory than what their children had. And I just think it's all connected. So one of my sort of things out of all is, is everything is connected. We are all connected. The, the, the most random person you can meet, you will find something in common with them because we're human. And that's the, 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 you know, we see these impossible things going on in the world now where there's protagonists and you can't see the solution. Once they, 
we find the common humanity of that common denominator, that's the place to start. And that's what I try to do when I've been building teams across my life. What have we got in common? How can I set the goals for what we've got in common? Because here's the values, here's the vision, this is what we're all trying to do. You might be doing your job over here that's this, and you might be doing your job over there that's that. But actually, they're just cogs in this big wheel that we're turning something because we're doing it together. So that's that's how so people really run through me but that's my my background and you know from from these these great grandparents who couldn't read or write to their children who were blue collar basically and worked at the gasworks all their lives in world war 1 to my father who was white collar but had to leave school at 16 to work because the family couldn't afford him to go on but was super bright person is super bright person to me that had the opportunity to go to university to my kids that have going to you know, come from a position of wealth. That's that's an incredible journey over just over a hundred years before I was born. Um, so you know that plays through to my philosophy around business and more about life. Is you need people to help you along the way, whatever you're trying to do. And the more you can get us working together for the same goal, you can achieve anything. I think. So many questions. <laughs> Going to have to be careful and pick one and go through bit by bit. You said 10 years ago you found this. 20, 20. Yeah. 20. And you exited Ella's Kitchen about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So when did you start it? Start Ella's Kitchen? Yeah. Uh, about eight years before I exited. So Right. Uh, so you found this first. I was trying yes, to get the time yeah, out. You found it. this. Yeah. What impact did this have then on your decision on yeah. how how and why to start Ellers? What were you currently yes. doing when you found right. this? Yes. Uh, I went to university and I first in my family to go and I started doing cellular pathology because I like to be the outsider. I found I wanted courses that many, many universities yeah. do, right? Something you could barely even say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And don't know, well, this is the crucial bit, didn't really know what it entailed because yeah. within days, if not weeks, you know, it, it's like, oh God, I've made a mistake here. Should I even be here? Am I an imposter and all of that? And I don't really understand what's going on and I, I'm, I'm going to fail at this. And, you know, I failed fast, basically. I changed course within that first term to start again doing economics and politics, two subjects I'd not studied at school at all, but I knew I liked and current could affairs. Pronounce. And could pronounce. So, it was, you know, I could spell and all the rest of it. Um, and, um, and I thrived then at university, um, became an accountant by default in, in a way i wanted uh, a safe career and i wanted to understand business from like nuts and bolts if you like what PL is how cash flow is different to it and all the rest of it and, and i qualified as that and then i went to nickelodeon to be the financial controller and over 10 years there i became the financial the uh, general manager at the end of it so quite a journey across that and it's in that time that I started finding about this about my family and what it gave me the confidence to do from that kind of corporate career, KPMG and, you know, Viacom company at Nickelodeon, was to say, well, actually, I now in my early 30s have an idea what, what this gives me the confidence, like my grandparents left Ireland with nothing to come, you know, to, 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 to do something like that. I evaluated what could go wrong. Um, and I thought, well, I can risk that. And I thought I'd give myself two years to be, um, to see if I could start a business, which I did. And then, so I left my Nickelodeon job in 2004 after just discovering my family background. In 2006, the first products arrived on the shelf and it really took off after that. What did you evaluate could go wrong? As in, do you remember? Well, yeah, because, um, 
uh, uh, people. Um, so my relationships with my wife and my family and, you know, and, and myself, you know, is, I've never done this before. I've never got a history of my family. I don't really know what entrepreneurship is, to be honest. Mm. Um, and I think that naivety actually helped me in the end. Um, and then obviously money. We, I was in my early 30s. We'd saved a little bit and we spent that and mortgaged the house fully. Um, um, because I wanted to, you know, I, maybe I'm backfilling this, but whether I knew the, the, these words kind of at the time, but I want to retain all the equity so that I could make the decisions going forward. I didn't want investors coming in early, as I saw it, screwing me over for an unfair amount of equity from from a you know business that's not turned over anything. Oh, I said like a true risk. CFO. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think I went rogue when I was at Nickelodeon in terms of I started off as the CFO and I ended up, you know, believing that marketing is an investment rather than a cost. Mm. Um, but I, I'm a big brand believer in terms of that is, you know, the power of communication. That's a massive asset for an individual and for a company. And you get that right. You get the emotion and you get people buying in because they feel rather than they know, if you like, or they're, they're told. Um, and that's powerful. But that's kind of a sidetrack there. Okay, so you started Ella's Kitchen. Um, literally in a kitchen? What's the, yeah. you know, take Ella's us, Kitchen. Yeah. So yeah. Ella is my daughter. Yeah, take she, us to the moment in time. Like, describe that first, this first few months just getting started, leaving. Love you to just paint the picture of leaving a corporate job, which is tough, with a family, which is even more tough. You mentioned mortgaging the house. Like, take me through the sort of, like, mm. conversations and emotional states mm. about the transition from safety to insecurity. Yeah. Well, I know I'm a risk taker in life, so that the kind of insecurity didn't really worry me as long as, uh, you know, I, and I do, but I do think through, through, through things. So I evaluated the risk. I worked out that if I spent two years and X amount of pounds, I was confident in myself if I hadn't got there, I would go back to what I did before or something similar. So I kept my networks. I knew how much I could lose in time and, and, and money uh, 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 and set off. But, you know, I started because of two things. And I, I, I'll explain the two things and I'll explain why I think it's really important to founders or, or would-be founders to get this right. <laughs> um, I found two th I found in my personal life, I had my daughter and I was intrigued by her relationship with food, like why when she was nine months did she love food and when she was a year she kind of explored new food, she didn't like any of them and this is where I started with games and mess and stuff and I copped on that if you make fun food, food fun, I copped on that if you make food fun then they will treat it as a game and like it and if you can make that healthy then, then they'll eat healthy food and also it de-stresses the parent. Um, and then in my professional life at Nickelodeon I was seeing that our kids each generation effectively was getting less healthy than the one before and television was being blamed. So I was up against like children's televisions showing bad ads. They're not playing outside. They're watching television. What are you going to do about it? And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, you know, if we can, if I can do something to create a brand along the, all that I'd learned and, and become a marketeer at Ella's Kitchen, if I could fulfill this itch of I've got an idea and I've got to, I've, I've got to explore it. And I, don't, I, I can evaluate where the risks are, but I'm prepared to take those risks. I've kind of thought about it. It was like a, a bit of an MBA I was doing for two years, and I'd learned so, as much as I would have done an MBA, and I could go back. Um, but I was passionate about this idea of kids, this idea of health, seeing other, seeing my daughter go through something that other 
so how can I help other parents like de-stress weaning? How could I help kids have a healthier diet? Um, and, and all of those things came together to say, right, I don't really know where this is going, but I'm going to give up this job that I've been doing for 10 years because I want something new. And let me explore. Let me start. You know, It's funny, now I'm, I'm the Chancellor of the University of Reading. It's a figurehead position, but I'm involved in academic work and uh, university life. And I can see how academics and entrepreneurs have so much in common in that they're seeking new knowledge and new ways of using that knowledge, but they're so different. In An academic wants to see the nth degree of evidence to prove something before they do it. An entrepreneur, as my experience and my successful friend's experience is, like you've got a vision and you just start, you've got to get the momentum to start and wherever you end up, you know the quadrant you want to end up with and where it on that tangent it is, you don't know just yet, but you know you're kind of heading towards the setting sun sort of thing and it's somewhere over there. And um, so, you know, I started, this is where I was coming back to what I think is important for, for would-be founders to think about is, I started with a mission and a reason why I was doing it and it was something I was passionate about. And I always think, you know, I've done hundreds of talks to students and want to be entrepreneurs and startup entrepreneurs. And if their idea is, I want to be an entrepreneur, I would say, caution, okay, think, find something that excites you that you want to be an entrepreneur. Don't think I want to be an entrepreneur and where am I going to find the thing? And certainly don't come back from going abroad somewhere and finding something and think that you can do that thing here you probably can make a successful business about it, but we won't excite you. And how do you evolve and adapt and innovate that thing? Because you're waiting for the person that you saw before to do the innovation that you can copy. So mm. it's kind of a veneer. Th 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 and I know people do can make successful businesses out of that, but the truly inspiring entrepreneurs I find start with this mission of why they're passionate about something, there's a problem to solve, and they go about it in their own unique way, and they fail and they adapt, et cetera, and they produce something that the world needs that hasn't had before. And, um, and ultimately, going back to human beings and my fascination with people is, isn't that just an awesome thing that people can do? No other animal can do, do this, is imagine something that doesn't exist and make it happen. You can dream something tonight that 80, uh, 88 billion people that have ever existed have never dreamt before. And if that thing, are you the person that can make that thing happen? Do you know the people? Can you collaborate with those people and make it happen? What are the bottlenecks? And that's kind of the world that I'm in a little bit at the moment, not necessarily through business, through society, but what are the bottlenecks and how can we solve them? Fascinated by the, per the person that invented the wheel. Are they the person that first thought of the wheel? Or was it other people who just didn't have the wherewithal or the time or the networks or whatever to, to, to make it happen? How do these things happen? But we can invent a better future and business is the perfect opportunity to do that. And the successful entrepreneurs are, are just the, um, the, the, the people that make it happen. You said something just then about, uh, you know, isn't it amazing about humans and our ability to have imagination? I remember many years ago reading Sapiens. I don't know if you ever yeah, read that. totally. Right, and I just, there's something very similar in that, which yeah. is, you know, the key defining characteristic and difference of Homo sapiens, which I can't remember the other type, sadly. Was it Homo erectus? Uh, yes, yeah? and, and, okay. the and then, yeah. yeah, right, and uh, they're both, both were bigger, stronger, and all of the things, so technically speaking, they had the upper hand on us, yeah. but we thrived because we had the ability to imagine, Yep. and so we could outthink you know, these yeah. unique brains, and I just loved that, I was like, that's so interesting, and he goes into all these like, examples of how that actually is a key defining you know, instinct for survival. And the other analogy you could have with entrepreneurs is really around you know, evolution. 
the people that succeed through evolution aren't the ones that do something fastest or do something best. They're the ones that can adapt to changing environments and circumstances best. Mm. And so you've got to be fleet of foot and you've got to sort of, you know, there's a whole load of things when you start your businesses, everyone listening will, will know is you can't control. They're just coming at you and you've got to deal with, you've got to have the resilience and the wherewithal and the network and everything to deal with it, but that you can't control. And, you know, and I know certainly in my first few years at Ella's Kitchen, the things that I learned from and failed at was trying to get tied up in all the knots of things that I couldn't control. What are my mm. competitors doing? Well, sod it. They do what they want to do. If they want to copy me, they can copy me. They're not going to know what to do next because I know what to do next. And I'm not going to tell them. But, you know, I can't control it. Worry about the things I can control and do them better. And um, that de-stressed me a lot. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Got two challenges for things you've said, if mm-hmm. I may. Please. Um, okay, so the first is uh, your sort of reflection on entrepreneurship in general. Um, very, I'd say, uh, idealistic. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world, all entrepreneurs absolutely will follow their purpose and their mm-hmm. dreams and find the thing that they really care about and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually share my own experience. My current company, Heights, is exactly all those things, and I'm very lucky. Um, my company, Kindling Media, where we make podcasts, I, I do that. I'm very lucky. I, you know, I I have current experiences, but I on my you know i've got five five companies one failure um the one that i really cut my teeth on called gravel um Mm -hmm. which failed Mm -hmm. but was a high growth mobile commerce startup 
and did really well until it didn't. Um, ultimately, I didn't really care about. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I started for all the wrong reasons and all of the things that you're saying, are they resonate with me and that they're all true. And, you know, I, I made all the mistakes because I was sort of chasing just a, what is a interesting problem to solve that I think is, it, like, is, is interesting and I'm excited by, but not something that I'm deeply passionate about at all. Um, and so what happened was built a great brand and good product, but terrible business. And in the end, I, mm -hmm. you know, it, it failed because it was a bad business. Um, but also, you know, I, as a founder, was completely burnt out and miserable doing it and all of the other things. And I was absolutely, I'd created my own cage. Um, that is a negative view of things. And that is true. However, the fact that I had that experience and I dusted myself off and I tried again and I did learn from the mistakes to find the right thing that I do love and I am passionate about, um, which is now in brain health and gut health, you know, that just like in general health fascinates me. That experience, that mm. opportunity, that mm. privilege comes mm. from trying and failing the wrong thing. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's quite rare to have your experience. It happens. I have lots of guests mm -hmm. on the show where it's happened. They have their one hit wonder. They, they dreamed big. They found the thing. They loved their mm -hmm. child. They want to solve the problem with their child. They made a $100 million business. It's still quite rare. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that I would challenge back to what you said is that um, there is a very idealistic picture. And quite often yeah. a lot of the founders and entrepreneurs that you will meet, and especially you who meet so many, um, might be pursuing okay. the not that important okay. thing. I'll ask a question back and mm. I'll reframe what I said as maybe answer. So the question I'm going to have back is which of those five businesses gave you most joy? Which of them will you reflect back or will you reflect back in 40 years time and think that was the time that I was most me? And if it's the successful one or the one that makes most money, great. But I suspect for maybe for many people, but I don't know for you, it might not be. Yeah. And so, it's actually so the what, one, what the definition... ironically, you're like this, it's the one that's the non-profit. Okay. Well, that, that's... <laughs> non-profit community. And then maybe the fact that there's no financial goals in there is also very So that is it. my kind of point is how we measure success. You say you've got a lot of successful people on here. Now, if that success is defined by they built a business, it became a unicorn, they sold it and they went on to do something else. That's great. If success for them was, I did something that changed the world. I did something that held my marriage together. I did something that my kids could make me feel proud of me because I did it, mm. my parents. That's success. 100%. So, you know, as I, you know, if we, if we look forward and say, how, how can business change the world? How can entrepreneurs change the world? I take a question back saying, what, what, what are you trying to change? What's the success? What's the metric of success that we're trying to measure against that change? And I don't think it's maximizing profits, maximizing exit values, maximizing countries' GDP. Because we all know that GDP, you know, we sell more cigarettes. Brilliant. GDP is going to go up because we have to sell not only the cigarettes, but we can sell all the vapes and then we can sell all the drugs that are going to have to, and, mm. and GDP has mm. gone up. Mm. Now, it's such a blunt sort of sort of guide to we're doing well, but there's so many other things that we don't measure. And, you know, if I got the opportunity, I'd love to share how within Ella's Kitchen, super successful businesses from, from a financial point of view, it made profits every single year of its existence. It doubled its turnover for, for the first seven years before I sold it from 1 million the first year to six, 60 X million in the, in, in the year that we exited. And so Ellis's Kitchen is successful from a, a financial point of view, but the way we did it wasn't at the expense of being successful in other ways. I am so proud, the most proud I think I am of what Ellis Kitchen has become is it's a B corporation. Mm. So it stands for something. It is standing and to be measured against something and to be counted against something. It's values that I, the back of my mind, like 
passively put in, then a few years in actively said, okay, this is like what our purpose is and this is how I want all our staff to behave and this is who we are. You know, we built, we, we, we gave, but we motivated people on, on those behaviors and those values and that mission beyond just the financial performance. So if people had lived our values, yet our, we didn't hit our financial targets, we, there would have still been a bonus and recognition. Um, and, and sort of the development of other human beings, the development of our team as, a pers- as people to find their passions, to help them be better, their careers and their lives, we invested in and they stayed longer and they thought about stuff when they were walking the dog or having a shower and, and it helped. So the other thing that I would frame, I think, around this idealistic way, way of, of, of ideal entrepreneurship is um, around reframing purpose to values. I think, you know, I think if you can, you head, hold your head up high if you operate your business, however successful or not it is, as you, as the things that you believe in, especially when people aren't looking. So you don't, you're not tempted to get away with cutting some cost or not paying somebody or substituting something, not telling anyone, if you can get away with it, because that's not who you are. Before we get on to Ella's Kitchen, mm-hmm. the other thing that you said. Oh, yeah. Uh, at academia, mm. a lot of, you know, your Chancellor of Reading, a lot of similarities with entrepreneurship. I was surprised to hear you say that because a very commonly cited thing is how our education system, university downwards, rewards perfection, ultimately. And entrepreneurship is all about failing fast, which you also mm. referred to earlier. How do those two mm. things actually mm. coexist in reality from someone who literally is sitting in the chancellor's seat yeah. and working with entrepreneurs? I think universities have got to fundamentally adapt in the next generation to provide the skills for business and for that society needs that non-university payers who effectively pay tax for the privilege of people to go to university give back to society. So. I think I don't think it's fit for purpose at the moment, if I'm absolutely honest. Mm. I don't think the evaluation of who, who gets to go to university is right based on academic performance only. I don't think what comes out in your degree is so should solely be based on your expertise and the chosen subject that you've got. How 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 has those three, four years at university added to your ability to be a better citizen? to help your, your fellow citizens and, and, and your community? That should be taught at university. So what Bristol University does fantastically, it does a course in innovation. You can get a degree, I think you can get innovation with 16 other things, some obvious things like entrepreneurship and perhaps engineering, but then drama and you know, archaeology and stuff like that. And that half of the course, there are no exams through those three years because exams are designed to pass and innovation is all about failure. So there's a whole load of workshops and you get people like me or other entrepreneurs coming in and kind of helping them through their workshops and evaluating stuff. But at the end of the day, it, it flips that thing to say, you get best innovation when you fail and what you do with that failure and how you learn to do that failure. And, you know, more universities have got to do more stuff like that. So, and, you know, I thought you were going to go down the question of, you know, there's a big debate as, you know, if, you, if somebody with an entrepreneurial idea age 18, is it worth them going to university and doing an academic stuff and getting that understanding of, of that side of the world or just getting out and doing and exploring and failing and, and working in it? And that's obviously a big debate as well. But um, with somebody who's got a son who's just graduating this year and going on to do a master's in innovation and entrepreneurship next year, um, I've been having those conversations in my own home about that. Yeah, because you did say earlier 
And I was like, that's just spot on. And then it's antithetical to what you've just said with your son, which is fascinating. Uh, you left Nickelodeon and could have messed around doing an MBA or we well, didn't say mm. mess around, but that's my interpretation <laughs> of most MBAs, but you could have done that or you could have just gone straight into business. Mm. And, you know, in society, we, we judge the reputation of an MBA mm. is a great investment for your future and going into entrepreneurship is a risk. Mm. And actually the cost is probably the same. You being the risk assessor mm. and risky person all, all in one, probably work those two things out and realize that the cost is probably the same. So you might as well just do the entrepreneurship mm. track because it gets you to the finish line two mm. years faster. Um, yet here you are with a son that's going into further education to learn about entrepreneurship rather than do mm. entrepreneurship. Mm. So how do you square that out in uh, your own family? Most people who do MBAs, don't end up being entrepreneurs. They end up with a corporate career and it does help in that. It's seen to help anyway, whether that's sure. right or wrong. Yeah. Um, we're, we're all individuals. So his motivations to do that are beyond, I want, to, I want to be an entrepreneur or I want to use that to help my innovation. He's doing a design degree. So he, he, he's got, he's kind of, he, it's buying him time to work out what he really wants to do. Um, and, um, you know, I take my hat off to entrepreneurs who are 18 and 21 around that age who, who actually get going. I was in my mid-30s. For having the clarity or the confidence or, you know, the understanding, or maybe it's the, you know, they're just going with the naivety. But, you know, it's, it, I imagine it's a lot easier when you in your 30s than when you're maybe it's not maybe that's an antithetical as well it's maybe interesting even, isn't it like, yeah. I, I sort of think that if you think about the lessons you need in entrepreneurship most of the most of the things you come back to are just like learning resilience yeah um and you know of course there's other practical things as well but a lot of it's that and it is earlier, but it's learning people i mean we can come back to people you for know sure. like, i i but so just but to this point the earlier you learn these things the better right yeah so if compound growth is the eighth wonder of the world then learning how to manage and deal with people and learning how to deal with setbacks and stuff from the age of 18 in real life experiences, there's some magic to that, right? Yeah. Maybe by the time you're 30, yeah. I didn't start at 18 either, by the way, so I'm not singing my own praises here. It's more that I also meet 18 year old entrepreneurs like you, I'm enamored by them. I'm like, wow, the bravery. But I'm also slightly jealous because I'm mm. like, you'll be so developed by the age of yeah. 26. You'll just understand so much more. It's quite amazing. Yeah. It's a real maturity. You, you talked earlier about, um, uh, Homo Sapiens yeah. as a book when, uh, that has been you know, really important to me it's on my little shelf with another uh, called A Hundred Year Life which is also fascinating written by an economist and a psychologist around the fact that a child born today is likely more than likely than not to live to over a hundred mm -hmm. um, um, but our society is not set up in any which way to, to, to cope with that from all sorts of angles and um, his the the outcome of that in this book is that although the twentieth in the twentieth century we had childhood, adolescence, the teenagers I guess uh, adults and retired people as four kind of separate um, things he they see in this next century as we uh, we should have had already that there's this gap between sort of eighteen and thirty if you like that sort of after education piece where people explore a lot more about what their purpose is or what they're good at or get wider skills or see the world or more, meet more people before they knuckle down to what their career becomes because their career is likely to have to go into their 70s or, or whatever. So, you know, and that's 
that's a massive opportunity for an individual, but humankind, I think, that we can explore and how that's funded and paid for. And it's likely two people are going to have to live to, you know, relationships really count, like personal relationships count then. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a fascinating thing of how our society might evolve. And that might be, there might be a lot more exploration of entrepreneurial type stuff, whether that's physically setting up a business or wondering, being curious about the world and kind of ch trying to change it or trying to do new stuff. And um, um, so that remains to be seen. And I hope, you know, going back to the university point, I hope universities can create the, 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 the confidence in young people to not just go out and be, be join the rat race. When I do my speeches at, at graduations, you know, I say my only advice to you is to be you. Find you. You're great now. Don't let somebody make you conform just to conformity's sake. Find you. Explore. Continue to explore, as Mark Twain quote, quote uh, I often use. Um, to summarize, life is a journey. Go travel. Um, yeah. And, you know, just going back to then Ella's Kitchen, you traveled into a kitchen. You uh, mortgaged your house. Mm -hmm. So take me through the funding journey. Yeah. No funding journey, funders at some point, like how did it work? And also, can I just say as someone who runs a physical product company with uh, supply chains and vertical integration and stuff, is insanely amazing <laughs> that you got profitable in your first year. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, probably more luck by, than by design, but you know, I was an accountant, so I did know <laughs> yeah. sort of my what business partner is an accountant, so maybe he's just not at PwC <laughs> though, so maybe he was at the wrong one. Yeah, well, so yeah. exactly, I'll have to blame <laughs> him for our we're profitable now, but we certainly weren't in our first year. Well, oh, there's a few things in that. Um, just on that, that point, I think it's so easy to get seduced when you're producing stuff for goods as a, as a, as a business and to be seduced by the fact that oh, when the volume grows, the cost will come down and I'll make money then. And I didn't believe any of that. I thought my customers are actually these big supermarkets who aren't known for their philanthropy, who there are too few of to that skews the balance of power anyway. And when they see I'm successful, they're going to turn the screws rather than release the screws. Or the, 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 the so is that what happened? Uh, yeah, really. Um, you know, and the economies of scale that you think do, some things do come about, but then there's other costs you haven't even thought about that that, that come in. Uh, you know, a system upgrade, you didn't have thought about a blooming system or a pension scheme, all these things you don't think about that, that add other layers of cost. But but so for me, the gross margin had to work from day one. And there was one major uh, retailer who I held out for for two years. You know, I launched exclusively with Sainsbury's, 360 stores from nothing. So that was a big risk from them, but it was a blooming, you know, and I, I remember they gave me the listing and I thought, yes, I've done it. And then like within seconds, it was, I haven't even started because now I've got to produce enough stuff to get into 360 stores in six weeks. And I don't even know where my broccoli is coming from sort of thing. Um, and uh, I feel like that's a really good name for a toddler book. I don't even know where my broccoli is coming from. <laughs> Very middle class, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so funding you asked about. So yeah. I did mortgage my house and that gave me enough money to buy that initial lot of stock and uh, I'd use my savings on the product development to get the product to a recipe that, that kind of would work. And then I sort of used my two things of, okay, be a little boy and just imagine things and kind of work the impossible and like let nobody tell you you can't do this. So 
A lot of that was around the branding and around wh what the brand stood for and became. So all the experts were saying it's organic, organic's new in this market and like you want to be pastels and greens and browns and all of that and Ellis Kitchen's big bold colours and it's because I thought you've got to attract the, the baby, the toddler and mm -hmm. they know bright colours and primary colours and, and then we use lexicon of language that is all about toddler like which pisses some people off probably because it's kind of childish, childlike, it's not childish. They see it as childish some, but it's childlike. But but it also, it, but it gets, it, it, it gets, the, uh, it takes some of the stress out of weaning. Anyway, it was very successful. Um, and then as far as marketing, I knew that the other big cost is, is marketing. I'm going into a market where the only customers are big supermarkets and the only competitors are huge multinational companies, Heinz, uh, Danone, the, those sort of organizations. And I've got next to no money and I've spent all my money that I can afford. So do I get new um, shareholders in? And I've got this thing about I don't want to dilute because it's, it's going to be successful this and I'm not going to. And I don't know what other value they could bring. Um, and so what I went, I, what, the creative thing that I did is I went back to Nickelodeon where I'd been for 10 years. And I said, look, I've been responsible for your revenue for years. I know that from an advertising point of view, you don't sell all your advertising all year. And I know what you do. You either give it to your existing um, advertisers who then come back next year and say, ah, well, you gave me 15 spots for that pound last time. Now, now I want 15 going forward. Or they use it for their own advertising, for promotions for their own stuff, for which they don't get any money. And I said, look, why don't you give me some of those spots? And I'm not, I will give you a percentage of anything that I sell because of those slots. And from the very beginning, I've sold nothing before. I won't do any other advertising. We'll create a cheap and cheerful ad, which you can help me create to, to go on your channel. You can play it in the spots that you wouldn't have sold anyway. You're not losing anything. And then you can show, you can do all the data and show other small companies that they can afford to do advertising on television. And they said, yep, we'll do that. And I did that deal that lasted two or three years. And that got me going. Because then I could go to Sainsbury's and say, I'm going to give you national advertising from day one. And it worked. And the really interesting thing I found was about a year in, and I was thinking, you know, now I'm, I've got other advertising going. And I, should I really be giving the same percentage of the pennies that are to, to, to them? And I thought, okay. Went to them and I said, we, we only had two, we had baby food products and we had smoothies at that time. And we had two, the smoothie range is all based on colors. So there's the red one and the yellow one at that time. There's many colors now. And I said, why don't you do some ads? Why don't we do like just two weeks of ads, only the red one? No, actually it was only the yellow one. The red one was the better seller. Only the yellow one. See if its sales go up. See if it goes up and red go down or they all go up or what happens. Mm. And there was a statistical meaningful difference in the effect of that. And that gave me so much that, that is changing behaviors and that gave them. The... So it's a long way of saying I found a way of not having to raise cash to get national marketing. And anyone listening to this, you know, this was 20 years ago. So television may be less relevant now, it's clearly relevant, but the internet or even trade magazines, the local paper, any, anywhere where your market is, if they're not selling it, they'll be interested in a conversation if there's a potential revenue share um, from that. And that, that, that got me going, not, in, not only in having to raise less, but also the kudos of going into big supermarkets and saying, I can compete with the big boys here in terms of getting building awareness. It's an amazing tactic. Obviously comes from some personal insight that mm. you had. Can you share what kind of revenue percentages you at least, either um, what you went for at the time or what you advise entrepreneurs listening to now to go in with if they're coming up with uh, this, this kind of proposition? Get away with, but um, <laughs> whatever you can get away with to make your product, you, make your PL still make sense. Um, so 
It, it would be different all the time, but I mean, keep it low. Single figure, like percentages. Yeah, we're talking about like five to eight percent. Yeah, kind something of thing. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this was 20 years ago, and the, you know, and you, you can be creative about that as well. So, you know, maybe you can offer prizes for some competition that they do on air or in the local newspaper or something like that. So, you know, I often think you can do your you can do your business plan and it's got cash in there and the substitutes for cash so often, you know, even if it's like changing your terms of payment and receipts and stuff, that's, that's, that's effectively um, building a business without cash. So um, be creative about cash, but that's, um, yeah, that's something we started. And, and your point around supply chains, it, it is a nightmare. You know, I had um, six different products, I think, when we started and, you know, I don't know, 20 ingredients across them. And, you know, this is where tenacity and creativity, again, will, will, will overlap and, and, and force in. I'd just taken in, within the first year, Tesco um, wanted us, and I sort of, my reluctance to go with them was that it was so big, I wasn't sure that I could fulfill a first order. And, you know, some people say, well, just bluff it and then work out the problem later. I was like, I'll bluff it to an extent, but like, I don't want my reputation's on the line here. So I worked out that I could do it. And then there was some blooming shortage of broccoli again in the country. And one of the products had broccoli. And there was a bad winter. And, the, you know, the way it all works kind of professionally is you pre-buy and you kind of, you know, and it's already pureed from our point of view. And I remember thinking, well, it's hopeless and I've just let Tesco down and I'm never going to get into them again and blah, blah, blah. And I sort of man up and just like think about this a little bit. And then ended up getting surplus broccoli from a farmer in England, taking it to Wales to puree it, taking it to Scotland to uh, and freeze it, taking it up to Scotland where our factory was to put it into the pea, broccoli, and pear uh, product, and then Tesco knew no different. But, you know, I got a few more grey hairs from doing that. But yeah. I worked out a way of doing it, basically. So yeah, you got to a tour of the UK, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, you should Bombs, have seen your grandparents and... in Ireland. It's the only one who skips. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Um, so going from this sort of like uh, a very tenacious like hustle in the first year to a $100 million exit, uh, or a $100 million business anyway, we can come mm. to the exit, Feels to me like the theme with you in what gets you there as a company is, and you've already mentioned it, people. Yeah. So how do you actually find the right people? Mm. Like, this is not about managing the people. We can come to that. But really identifying talent is mm. this je ne sais quoi, this magical gold dust that every leader wishes that they could find. But you seem to have uh, a knack for it. So yeah. what, well, what other tricks? We made mistakes, but... Um, Come to that. So if you're talking about really early stage stuff, you're doing everything, right? And at some point you want to work out, I think, you don't, you don't want to be doing everything and you want to be doing the things you're good at, recognizing the things that you're not to Scotland. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do the stuff that you're rubbish at and get people in to do to them who probably have a very different mindset. So I'm rubbish at project plans and working out, what does you do A first or B first or C and can you do C before you've done B and all of that. And, you know, it's like magic for people. You know? And so the first person I got was somebody in to do that. And like skill-wise, we were totally different. Like you, you know, speak the same language sort of thing, but together with, with the common vision and what we were doing, it, it worked. Then when you're a little bit, so to so get people in who do, who do stuff well that you don't do well, recognize what you don't do well, you're not great at everything. None of us are. And then when you grow a little bit, you start employing people. I guess the two pieces of advice I have is 
um, th through, you know, this evolved. Now I can speak as a sage saying it works, but, you know, I wasn't thinking about this being employ on mindset, not skill set. Absolutely. Especially if you're a smallish team, if you like less than 100 people, 50 odd people, 30 people, one wrong person's mindset is not one out of 30 people. It, it's, it, it, the impact is much bigger than that. So in, work out your recruitment process based on the mindset of the, obviously there's a bar for skill set and you can't employ a non-accountant who can't draw and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, once you've got a pool of finalists for, for your for process, just really concentrate on the mindset and do it from many perspectives. So, you know, we got, we always had, I'm 10 years out of this now, but, you know, I know the people that still are involved there and run it and they're brilliant and they still continue to do much of this stuff. But, you know, get, get the 360 interview process so the people are involved in recruiting their boss. Um, um, set, I, I look to do whether you could do psychometric tests in a different way based on values rather than kind of intelligence or, um, and um, it turns out it's quite difficult to do, but we tried to do amateur ones of that to kind of get insights basically. So, but people, the wrong people do get through still. So the second thing along that is fail fast and get rid of people quickly if they're not fitting. So very much, I, if you think about it, a recruitment process, an interview process is a ridiculous way to find somebody who you hope is going to work with you for years over really, a series the best of way three months. You find a contractor and then you try and convince it's the shit out of them. Uh, they never want to because they're contractors and they're, they're, they've chosen that life. But it's an amazing way, isn't it? You're like, this yeah. is the dream. If only I yeah. knew that I could have five, six months of predictable brilliance from someone and then you want to hire, obviously, because the interview process, like you say, is crazy. Funny enough, the third thing I was going to say was we got professional HR in relatively early mm. as a team and the person who um, stayed for 12 years was a contractor who came in to look at how we should set up HR. Yeah. And she said, I love everything you're doing. I'd love to do this. And she came and stayed and stayed for 12 years and embedded all the values and everything in a professional process. But we Which got, is the ideal. That's which is the ideal. That's, that's well, ideal. Well, one of my yeah, learnings yeah. was, my advice is, you know, people count. You want to get the best out of them. Get a professional in to help you build all of this for the long term early. You might think 20 or 30 people is too small to have a proper HR, mm. you know, as long as that person is not just ticking off the health and safety and the kind of rules and stuff, but helping develop the culture and the values and why the rewards and the motivations and stuff. Um, so just talking about how the interview process is so crap. Um, so I extended it and was very, so I always did the third interview, just me, and it was no set questions. It was just a chat. Is this person going to fit in? And I was very careful to always say, Look, don't think that, you know, the interview process is finished with the other two and you're just having a chat with me. This is part of the interview process. And don't think when you start it's finished because we'll sign up to a three-month or a six-month um, probation period. We've promised that we live these values. This is what we do. This is what your job is. You Periodically through that period, we're going to ask you to come back and are we, do, are we fulfilling that? And likewise, you've promised all this stuff. And we're going to be coming to you and saying, actually, you're not delivering this, or you didn't have that experience or whatever. And at the end of the, the, the three or six months, you may not stay because it's part of the interview process. It's in our rights to say, you know, you didn't fit, didn't work, and, and goodbye. And that made a difference and helped us, you know, and you think it's a pain at the beginning because you have to find the right person. But if you're thinking about a longer, you know, we want this person, we want to train this person. We, as we grow, we want them to grow with us. 
and and you know it's going to be a cost saving in the way if we're not recruiting and retraining people all the time um but that was a learning how ruthless do you think you've had to be um you don't i'll put it to right you don't seem like a ruthless no person. i surprised myself that i was ruthless yeah. enough you don't come and, across like ruthless no. but i'm listening to you and realizing you have to be yeah and that's what elon musk does is he you know his mission is to tell the truth and many of us will think, well, he hasn't got a mission, like it doesn't really fit. But if his truth is uncomfortable and weird, then it's still his truth and he's delivering it. And that's kind of a good thing. And, you know, and I just think it's not fair on the other 50 people if this person, you know, gets paid the same as that person, that person gives a damn, this person just thinks it's a jolly, that person's got to go. And the easiest legal way of doing it is saying, well, the interview process lasts through this probation period and you've promised something to us and you've not delivered. And so it's all up front and there's multiple opportunities to put it right. If they're saying to us, you're not giving me the opportunity to shine, for me to shine, well, you know, that's on us then at that period. Um, so, you know, I, I got better at it, <laughs> um, but it, it's vital and it's um, that's a learning. It's easy to talk about how a company grows and wins and scales because the hiring processes were great and you learn how to improve them and you, you find the right team. But... What have you learned from the ones that have failed? Like, have you had any experiences with hiring just going really oh, wrong? Yeah. Bad people experiences. Obviously, anonymize the people, but please share the experiences because that's really valuable for us. Um, the first person that didn't work was about the fourth person in who was our first sales director, effectively. I don't think we called her that at the time. But we recruited her from one of the supermarkets where she was a buyer. And I'm thinking, well, she knows the supermarket process. She's going to, you know, what they're looking for, she can go in. And, you know, and she's totally wrong skill set. She's a buyer, not a seller. And she had worked for one of the big supermarkets, not a startup with four people. And she didn't fit in, you know, she couldn't cope with the fact that we didn't have X amount of data. We were kind of making it up. And, you know, and, and she was a buyer. She didn't know how to sell. Mm. So, you know, big, massive learning there. I'd looked through the wrong, lo wrong lens. Mm. Um, and that sounds like more like your fault than her fault. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, totally. No, no. And, but we failed faster. And she, she worked out quickly that she'd made a mistake as well. And then another example would be when the company outgrows the person. The person's great for them. This is even harder person's great for a number of years, but then suddenly you're not 15 people, you're 100 people. Suddenly you're in 15 markets, not one market, and, you know, you're dealing with 100 products, not three. You know, so people that are great in a certain part of the growth journey aren't later, and you have to make those decisions, and I made some of those too late, and we suffered as a consequence, including the founder. You know, so many founders, I think, some leave too early, some leave at the right time, and some leave far too late, and they haven't got the skill set or the mentality or the resilience or the um, corporateness of when a company gets to a point where it has to be a little bit more corporate um, to move on. But, um, you know, and, and, and making those decisions, we had, what did we call them, stars and stars and bars. Star, we had like a an X and Y chart where we map people against two axes of where they were, and I... You know, it's like 
innovation and sort of ideasness and getting the job done or mm. some, something like that and like where they were and we gave extra rewards and bonuses or recognition of some ways for some people but also then it made it a group of people who on the face of it were fulfilling their job really well but weren't actually adding to the wider thing besides fulfilling their job and we had to have a conversation with them and i'm not saying we fired them or anything but you know it was it was a conversation that we forced ourselves to have but at the end of the day you know what i think about business is that um, it, it is really all about what you build as a culture rather than, well, not at the expense of your strategy, but if I was to say, you know, focus, where, where should your main focus be? If you're building a business that has people that need to interact with each other and need to work as a team to deliver whatever you're delivering, then developing a culture where they feel relevant, involved, they can make autonomy, autonomy to make their own mistakes, that is gold dust because you get double the amount of work done um, and less turnover and strife and left field stuff than, than anything else. So, so working out the magic source to, to, to get the most out of people. But, but even that, you can think about it, that's your people that are working for you. You've got your investors. I'd say it's exactly the same as that. You know, chasing the, the the money for somebody that is going to be on your board and work and telling you what to do in some ways or working with you if you don't get on with their values or them as people don't get them in even though their money mm. might be attractive because it's not going to work in the long term if you want anything more than a relationship of them giving you money or investing my money in you and likewise with the the buyers and the you know your, your, your suppliers you know, you can think, well, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, all these big companies. At the end of the day, you're in a room with an individual person. You've got to work out what's motivating that person to take the meeting, to go to their boss at the end of the week and say, out of all my meetings, that was the one one we should do something with. And it's not the same spiel to every each of those four different supermarkets, say. And it's where it's investing the time up front to understand the person sitting there and pick up quickly. Oh, she talked about a daughter, oh, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and sort of pitch your, your things around that. But at the end of the day, I really think beyond the logic of a business plan, business plans don't deliver themselves. Somebody delivers them and somebody believes in them and all the rest of it. And it's the mindset of the relationships that can be built and understanding the motivations within those relationships that where I think I added most value as, you know, as an accountant and as a marketeer, actually it was my people skills that, that I think and recognizing people when they've done well and not done well and doing something about both, even if it's just a thank you. The CEO said thank you to the th person that started three weeks ago, remembered my name and knew what my dog's name was. That it will motivate that person hugely. And then in the very early years, when you know I was managing, say, twenty or thirty people, and um, I knew their wives, girlfriends, dogs, everything, husbands and children, um, and I made a point of making bonuses, rewards, personal. So I don't know. You support a football team, Arsenal. Arsenal get you a, just one match ticket. Box ticket or something might cost me five hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. That is worth two thousand pounds to you. Yeah, more, um, uh, more. And, well, yes, yeah, it's not worth. It's not it. worth the money. It's not. Yeah, it's not worth the monetary value. It's worth well, my commitment to the you company. See, but I wouldn't do that for you. I do for the, the person that supporters Scunthorpe United. So now I can get a cheaper <laughs> ticket. <laughs> but um, uh, so just and you can do that with twenty or thirty people, and then they all you all feel a team better. Obviously, mm. you can't when you there's right. hundreds of people. But you know noticing people from the p person rather than the oh marketing assistant 
finance director, whatever, that that really works. So, you know, my 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 if, my big learning of growing Ellers was grounding it in values and saying, this is who we are, this is what we stand for now, how can we build products and services and a team and a culture around that? Um, and how can we engender trust within us as a team and with the ecosystem around us, our suppliers and our customers, our investors? Um, and, 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 and by developing authentic, those three things are all linked with authenticity, I think. Just be you. You know, when you make a mistake and you fuck up, admit it and like don't try and cover it up and and um, whether that's an individual because it will get found out later within the, the company if you like or you know us as a company i remember um my first book that i wrote which is called little wins and it's about the huge power of thinking like a toddler and it's a little Not, bit about we're all out of broccoli mum <laughs> no that's going to be the third one that's that's the new one that i've just stolen from you um it, uh we, we um i, I it, it was kind of a story through a lot of the experience of Ellis Kitchen and what I learned. And I was kind of talking about what I've just talked about. And I got a call or an email from one of our small suppliers that said, this is bullshit. You didn't treat me like that. And I was horrified. And I, this was like five, six years later. And um, I went to, I wasn't CEO anymore. I went to CEO who was the sales director then. And I said like, you know, and I said, let's go and see him. Let's let's just understand this. I want him to know that it wasn't. But I want to hear why, mm. what we do, what I didn't, what I was totally blind to. And we did. And it was an awkward conversation. But I'm so glad we did. And I think they were glad we did as well. And you know, it's a good example of seeking truth, mm. uncomfortable truth as well. Yeah. And you've got to face your warts and all. Exactly. There's a very well known quote from Charlie Munger: "Show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome." Hmm. Seems to be a really interesting theme with the stuff that you're doing here because um, you referred to cigarettes even earlier, right? And, you know, the incentive around that and you get the outcome of like, oh, your GDP just sell more cigarettes. And then you have your own personal life, which is, or so your business life, which is understanding how to get motivation out of people hmm. and aligning the incentives, it sounds like, not just on a company performance point of view, but around culture and values. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a little primer on that? Like, how do you set up uh, incentives and rewards for a team that are centered around a culture you want to build, mm -hmm. like little snapshots yeah. so we can apply it ourselves. Okay. First of all, there's the, the bonus scheme itself. Um, in my day, this was pre-sale, I guess, pre-exit, we had a stream of, you, I felt it important that people felt ownership of the company. When they talked to their friends at a party, they said, you know, we're Ellis Kitchen, I'm Ellis Kitchen, et cetera. So we had something called strawberry stock, which is share options effectively, but it was framed in a way that was empowering that they could, yes, they could change the part of their bonus. We gave everybody £1,000 worth of stra strawberry stock after every year, for, if they've been with us for a year, for every year that they were there. And we involved them then in the discussions around where the company was going, not the nitty gritty of it, but kind of the broad the broad thing. And so they felt both emotionally and practically, physically involved in the company. That's one side of, it's not, it's not a reward scheme, it's like an involvement scheme. But the bonus scheme, 50% of it was on financial performance, but 50% of it was in living the five values that Ellis had, which were everywhere in terms of, you couldn't miss them, you knew what they were. They'd be from your very first interview through to uh, little notepads and everything. But, but you know, and, and part of the development plan that everyone had was, was built around those values and what that means financially and what it means emotionally and, and, and that. So people get rewarded from that. Then we had um, little things to make people 
feel rewarded. Some of it financially, some of it not. So uh, we had a give it a go thing where everybody every year could take 50 or 100 pounds and do something they've never done and come back and talk about it. It didn't have to be to do with work, but invariably it helped them in work in some way. Ooh, I did an Ella's day, Ella's birthday every year, my Ella, my daughter's birthday, where I just asked nobody to come in, but do something that is helpful to the business. And just it might be, you know, you can go to walk and think about something and see colleagues you never see before. You can go to a factory or a school or do some research. And like some people would have gone to the pub or stayed in bed all day or whatever, not done anything. But I took the risk. It was rewarding for the, it just felt like autonomy. It was seen as autonomy. And we had two or three ideas that came back from those days that we we implemented. Um, what I know Ellers do, does now as a B Corp, part of the B Corporation community, they have kind of a mentorship program across all the B Corps mm. in this in this group where they, 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 they so they help each other. Another thing, we didn't actually follow through in my time, but um, I just thought this, I'd love to do this with, with another organization is to get relative, the kind of middle managers. Give them time off to go and work in a charity, a local charity, and use their marketing skill in that local charity and help the community and help and learn themselves. And then bring, you know, actually there's another brand here, another, and bring it back. And so I think there's, there's so many opportunities for businesses to interact with non-businesses, the, the civil space, charities, government, in a much better way so we can earn, all learn off each other uh, much more. Um, yeah. when, when it comes to building culture, um, how much of what you do do you think is, you know, that cult of culture, like mm. how much of it is essentially indoctrination mm. um, and, you know, hacking psychology mm. in a positive way? I mean, one way or mm. another, you're going to hack people's psychology by the very notion of uh, storytelling, yeah. right? Storytelling, repeating the story, the purpose, why we're doing stuff. So it's not all pejorative at all. Mm. But how much of it, you know, is like, how much of that is important to get the cohesion, to get the shared sense of mission? I think as a leader, there's a great quote by Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, around leadership is all about getting people to do things you want to do because they think they want to do it. <laughs> but they think that's what they've thought of doing it. And so that's a little bit like with culture. I don't think any leader can say, all right, our culture's this, and off we go. Culture evolves, and it evolves from the bottom up. And so you can set the values and you can choose the people that come in within the company, but then you've got to let it, let it grow. And you've got to kind of live, live, walk the walk as well as the talk, but, and, and, and can help redirect it. But ultimately it's their culture. If you're the founder and the CEO, you, you can be part of it. But it's not really it's mm. like what they've created and you can spot when it's not going right and, and et cetera. But it, so it's got to evolve. Um, I'll turn it on its head and say when, when I notice toxic cultures as soon as you walk in the building, people are concerned about what their job title is or where they sit or, you know, what who's, where blame is to be put and, 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 and things like that. You know, it's kind of not natural. I don't know. Maybe I'm being idealistic, but I managed to create a company with 100 people who believed in a common purpose, who, were, who had a like-minded in how to do things um, but were challenging enough and it worked. And it was the small things of noticing people rather than the big things of saying, this is our business plan for the year. I was much in the, in the mindset of, let's set a business plan that we're never going to achieve. 
and let's achieve something much higher than we would if we got two percent over the business plan let's fail by 30 percent but actually get 10 percent higher than we would have done otherwise how can i sell that to my team who think their bonus is defined on how can we set the bonus scheme so it doesn't really matter as long as we know if we're confident that they're giving their all and we as a management the kind of senior management team have got the strategy that others can buy into mm-hmm. and then it is storytelling then it's storytelling as to why you in your life circumstances in your job buy in to doing the extra hour when the shit's hit the fan and you you know that's what you choose to do and i you know that i will thank you for that and recognize that you've done that and the rest of the team will so you know i see with it we may come on to exit but you see with it so many exits they are they are orchestrated or at best heavily relied upon the advisors and the bankers as to who to go with and now and often they don't deliver the value that they promised and the fact that is down to the fact of a change of culture and a change of direction a change of trust and authenticity within the the, met, the, the, the assets are the same it's not delivered and it's not delivered because of that this under thought through thing of you know so i'd like a psychologist in the room as much as mm-hmm. a banker to, to to make sure that if i care about what happens to the business going forward did you take investment in the journey then did you find investors i took four individuals who between them had uh 20 something percent um and each of whom had experience or network that i didn't have right and how valuable were they in on reflection in the journey do you advise it to other entrepreneurs it depends on the individuals i think and, and the individual entrepreneur i got the right amount of support from them active that they were giving me and passive they didn't know they were giving me but because they were there i felt more comfortable whatever and the balance between i'm quite controlling as in like i'd like to know i like to control my destiny so you know i had vetoes on some things and things and they knew that and you know we butted heads a few times but they still added value so they added value they got to our sale which wasn't you know the, the, the sale wasn't the thing well, i guess it was what does, that, what does that mean i didn't start a business to build a business to sell it to make money i built a business to mortgage your house mission. and give stress to your family <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly like any responsible father well i'm not saying that they're different there's different sides of the scale i think you achieve the biggest financial performance when you don't concentrate on mm. the financial performance it's a consequence of the things you are concentrating on yeah. rather than the other way around and i'm an accountant and i come from a background that isn't of wealth and I, so all that was important but i didn't sell at the time because i wanted to pack up count my bank balance i sold because i thought it was the best route for the best future for the company and i thought i'm not the person to lead that going forward so that there's two things that were going on i didn't have the skill set to you know 150 or 200 or 700 million company is it public how much you sold for the company it is i think it was uh, 105 million dollars something like that okay so what do you do as a person who's not grown up with wealth has put a lot on the line at that point and now has more money than they ever really understand what to do with mm. well that's probably quite condescending to an accountant i'm sure you knew exactly what to do with it <laughs> but in reality um you've got this new psychology and identity to deal with yeah was that yeah. a weird transition for yeah you? i mean if you think about it you're doing two jobs you're running your business and you're trying to sell a business which is a full-time job in itself 
and suddenly you're doing neither. Mm. And, you know, one point you're in the papers all the time and everyone wants you to be interviewed on television and suddenly you're not. And suddenly you've got a lot of money in your bank account and what do you do with it? And like, what's that? What? Yeah, it comes back to purpose again. I'm obsessed by purpose. But like, where's the purpose of money, really? I mean, it doesn't really exist, does it? It's about trust. It's about the fact that your £10 is going to be honoured as £10. I have never wanted to be defined by money or my money or help money redefine me. And I therefore think I ploughed in far too quickly to keeping busy and making sure that the next thing for me, which I didn't know what it was, was at my fingertips. So I kept networks and I said yes to far too many things and I got too busy too quickly. And then quite quickly, I worked out, I spent so, Ellis Kitchen was successful because of people and sharing a, a goal. They knew what the goal was. They knew what their values were. What are my values personally? Well, it turned out to be exactly the same as Ellis Kitchen's values because I put them in the first place. But what's my purpose in life? What's my mission? And I spent a little bit of time working out that and then I could pick what's what. Um, you know, and I'd love to see the world richer in opportunity, ideas, and kindness. They're my three things and that lives my life now. Entering that process of which, you know, I hadn't thought was the end goal from the beginning anyway. I cared what happened, still care what happens to Ellis Kitchen now, over 10 years later. It's got my daughter's name on the tin. Um, and um, I, 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 I remember thinking, this is like a horse race. And each time I jump something, the, 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 there's three fences and they're all to do with the word value. First of all, the, whoever I'm selling to, I care about what their values are. Those people that will continue to work for this person or this company, it's only going to work if the values align. So spent a lot of time working out what their values are. Second thing is the value. I'm not going to sell this cheap. You might think I'm, you know, a hippie, progressive kind of person. That's, the money's not the, the means of it. I'm an accountant and I've come from a place with not wealth. So it's really important just for the record, even if it's just not the money itself, it's the recognition that we've created a value of something. So does the little Venn diagram overlap of where the values could be? And then the third thing was added value. What are they going to bring that others won't? I do want this company to grow and grow and grow and succeed and deliver its mission better. And um, what, what is it? Distribution? Is it capital? Is it access to talent? Is, what, what is it? Markets? And um, so went through that those three um, hurdles to the people that we sold to in the end. When it comes to being a father, uh, well, actually, firstly, what's your son's name? Paddy, Patrick. And just two kids? Just two kids. I did set up two companies. You did? I had that whole dilemma. You got of, Paddy's garage or something going on? Well, that's yeah. it. So Paddy's bathroom did exist Paddy's for bathroom. three years. Yeah. It got into all the major supermarkets. Yeah. It failed ultimately because it, it didn't make money enough. Really? It didn't live some of the things that I've just talked about and I've learned from. Um, you set this up after Ellis? Uh, so I had the idea more or less at the same time. Right. went to do one of them. Kept the other one in the back burner, if you like, but had some products kind of half developed in that. And then thought, look, I've got all these consumers that really trust and buy into Ella's Kitchen. Let's create bathroom products for them that are all the things that Ella's are. It can be f getting clean is as much fun as it was to get dirty. Kids should get dirty and play. But there's no 
parabens, SLS, there's all these chemicals and things in these products. They're fun flavors. It's bright packaging. Kids will want it to be available. And set off in the supermarkets, brought into it. And um, uh, we got a 2 million turnover, something like that. But I just couldn't find a way of making money. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, I had to make the hard decision of, okay, I just got, I, you know, I can make more difference to the world doing something else. How did Paddy take it? Like a man. <laughs> <laughs> like the 12-year-old he was or something at the time. Yeah. Um, like, don't give a shit, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually really well, busy playing Xbox. he's the guy that's Xbox. gone on to now want to do innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, good. Um, so, you know, something I've heard of him. Uh, Ella is works with mental health with young people. She's left university now. She's doing her career and um, she worked for CAMS and she's worked... Um, for, for she uh, does therapy with kids that are not in school. It must be quite weird growing up sort of vicariously famous. Yes, she says, well, she, remember she's saying it to me when she was about 13, it was all kind of awkward. It's just, she says, you know, it's really cool, but it's really awkward. <laughs> but she's very proud of, of it. And um, Understanding quite a lot of your influence comes from toddlers, kids, your experience, etc. What is your message to the audience, whether they are parents or not, about how to build a brighter business for a brighter future for our children, how to raise better leaders? I would say um, the two attributes, human attributes that I think are most important for building a business, and they're common across all cultures is curiosity and bravery. Curiosity to ask why, which is what toddlers do all the time. In fact, an even better question is to ask why not. My political hero is Robert Kennedy from the 1960s. When he stood for president, he quoted something that George Bernard Shaw wrote a uh, hundred years before, but constantly he, he quoted this and it was, some people dream things as they are and ask why. I dream things that never were and ask why not. That's me. That's why I started my company. Why isn't there baby food that is both healthy and fun? Why aren't the flavors beyond the four things that look orange in every jar? Why are they in jars? Why aren't we talking to parents in an emotional level rather than a functional level? All of those things nobody had ever answered. Everyone thought it was mad to go down them. My toddler self thought about it, but it was curiosity. Then I had the bravery to fail, basically. And, you know, curiosity without bravery is not good. So I think. You know, if you ground your psyche and you ground your goals around being curious and brave, um, you, you, you get places. You've got to recognize within that metric, though, of when failure happens, that it has happened and to, to do something about it. Stop what you're doing. It's not working. Stop. Never do it again. Or stop, but you learned that actually if it was left, not right, then you should have gone the other way. Um and use it to, to, to adapt. The other thing I think, which we touched on when you were talking about what wealth means, is set your values down and just that's who you are and live them. And I hope I haven't come across as money doesn't matter. I'm an accountant, I'm a capitalist, I've, money does matter. You can't, you can't change the world without money. But I think it's a consequence, you get it as a consequence of things rather than focusing on it. And I think that, that focus, some people don't achieve what they could achieve, whether that's the, the quantity of money that they want, if that's what their goal is, or the goals, the, the, the things they want to change because they focus on the wrong thing. It's a consequence. It's not a goal um, of an outcome. Um, and, you know, it is, you can't change the, the 
second business that I had, Paddy's Bathroom, failed because I got the balance between social business, a for-profit business, wrong. I focused on the social and not the business as an accountant and no one who knows their way around a business plan and created a successful financial business. Um, I, 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 I missed the both of them count. Um, so, you know, do a business plan, half the revenues, double the cost, half the, double the amount of time it will take people to pay you. If it still looks like it's not an absolute disaster, then find the people to be able to deliver it, motivate them in the right way. You know, whole of life, anything, anything to do with business is not really around the economics. It's around the psychology of understanding behavior and how to affect behavior change. And I think there's just three ways of doing that. You change people's capabilities, you give them skills, you change their opportunities, and you understand their motivations and help change their motivations. Then you get behavior change, whether that's the behavior change of your new customer who used to buy somebody else's stuff and is now buying yours, or it's your investor who's had three things to choose from and you understand what's going to motivate their behavior to invest in you, or your staff and what gets the best out of them as a team to move forward. But I think, you know, my final sort of thing is a bit of humility, really. You know, I, you, you've seen more entrepreneurs than I will have done, and I don't know if you see this come through, but the best ones, the ones that have the best story and the most learnings from, are humble because they appreciate that although they had some spark, it took others to ignite that spark and build the fire. And people we have never met, some person who's paid tax and is living in poverty help pay for the road and the police and the fire engines mm-hmm. that got my stuff from my factory to the shop that I sold it from. That's not that's just luck that I've been born in a country that has been set up that somebody who I'll never meet, who is less well off than me and who'd no idea that their contribution has helped me. And that's why I think when successful entrepreneurs exit, they there is a responsibility. I don't responsibility is the wrong word. I, re, I think the successful ones will feel an innate reason to use what they've learned and their experience rather than just go off and play golf and smoke mm. cocaine. And I think a nice lesson that I've learned from listening to you is it is important what you do, but it's not so important what you do. It's most important who you do it with. Mm. You're going to spend every day with those people. So if you can enjoy that, that's your environment. If you can bring them up and you go on that journey together and you're doing it with them, you'll get the financial return. It becomes an obvious outcome because you collectively have created something that you've enjoyed doing. Yeah. Connectedness is so underrated, I think. You know, we hadn't met before today and, you know, we've explored all sorts of things Mm -hmm. that set my mind buzzing about you as a person, but also the knowledge that you've shared. And anybody listening or watching this, you know, I hope they see two people, people talking and sharing and, and, you know, hopefully it sparks conversations and ideas that can be fed back somehow to us. Um, but I think the world works with 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 putting humanity at the heart of business, I think, and, and society, we've missed it. We've lost it along the way. We've been seduced by interim things or consequences of other things. And um, that's 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 my learning. And that's what I hope I can spend another decade or two um, helping the world get better at. And I hope that people who've enjoyed the interview and all of Paul's insights get the new book, presumably Amazon and smaller booksellers, etc. Everywhere you can buy a book, you can buy it. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Paul. Excellent. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. See you next time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.